everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is another Wednesday Kickstarter episode, but it's actually going to come out uh, later in the week as a bonus because uh, I have a comic book legend, uh, a creator who's been around for a long time, uh, and he's only a week to go with his Kickstarter. So I wanted to give you all a chance to hear uh, directly from the man himself, Carl Kiesel. Uh, welcome to the show, Carl. Thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me on, Jace. Yeah, it's uh, it's great. I've been a fan of your work for for so long. I feel like you you've done it all. Uh, Superman, Superboy, Harley Quinn, Spider Man, Batman. I mean, are there any characters that you didn't work on that you <laughs> wish you would have? I mean, at this point, I just feel like you, like I said, you you've worked on everybody. Well, I mean, I've I've at least dabbled with everyone. Yeah, I've had longer runs on some like Superboy, Superman, and uh, you know, a couple years on Harley Quinn. Uh, there's, you know, there's always a few characters out there you wish you could have done more with or, or mm. played with a little longer. I, um, I've done only a very, <clears throat> excuse me, a very little bit with uh, Namor the Submariner. And, and in a little bit I worked with him, I thought, he's such a great character. I, I liked writing him, quite honestly, more than I ever liked him as a fan because I realized his, his arrogance is just so fun to write. Right. It's so fun to write that sort of arrogant character. And if I could do more with Namor, I would, I would jump at that chance. Man, I would love to. I would love to see that. Uh, and then we, we've saw recently one of your uh, creations, King Shark, uh, live action Suicide Squad. Yeah. When you saw that, what was your reaction? Were you just like, "Wow, that's so cool." Uh, it was. A, it was kind of one of those mind blown moments. I mean, I had heard he was going to be in the movie, so I was very excited about that. But I mean, it, it's it, it just kept getting bigger. The idea that Stallone, Sylvester Stallone, will do the voice. I, first of all, I thought that was perfect. And, and second of all, I was just like, it, you know, it, it just is kind of those, one of those six degrees of separations where I go like, oh my God, I'm like two degrees removed from Sylvester Stallone now, you know, I doubt we're ever going to be at the same cocktail party, but that's kind of just a mind blowing to think about. Yeah. Well, you know, if you ever are, you'll have your in, you can walk up to him and be like, you know, I created King Shark. <laughs> that would be so cool. Uh, well, I want to talk about your creator owned. Uh, I want to talk about the, the campaign, but it is the first time you've had you on the show. And I always like to ask people, not necessarily um, their secret origin of how they got into comics, because you've probably told that story uh, a ton of times, but but more how you discovered comics as a as a, a kid. Were they a part of your childhood? Do you remember reading them? Did you have any favorites? Well, I mean, I can't remember how I actually stumbled onto them. It probably had a lot to do with um, the, the, the that very bad limited animation um Marvel Comics stuff that was on in the mid '60s. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know when Captain America throws his mighty shield. Yeah. You know, I I remember watching those. Those might have been my first exposures to the to the characters. I also remember the Fantastic Four and Spider Man Saturday morning TV show really well, and the uh, the the ABC twenty. I think it was a twenty five cent oversized thick comic book that they put out in mm -hmm. conjunction with the Fantastic Four and Spider Man. I remember having that comic and reading it until the covers fell off. <laughs> so that was probably my, my first exposure. Um, you know, I, I, I remember having a few scattered issues of comics. I, I had an issue of Spider-Man from like in the 50s or 60s where Kazar guest stars. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember I was very confused because on the first page, Kazar calls Spider-Man Masked Man. And as a kid, the masked man to me was the Lone Ranger. Right. And I was like going, why is he calling Spider-Man the masked man? <laughs> so, I mean, I was, I was young. I was young. I didn't understand how these pieces all fit together. 
but um, but I was very attracted to comics from a very early age. And and the tipping point really was in 69. I was 10 years old and my family took a month-long trip across the country. We I grew up in New York State. We had a Dodge van and a, and a Shasta camper behind us. And we just started driving all across the southern tier of America, stopped at Disneyland, drove back through the northern part of, Cal- of uh, the country. And that was 10, 12 hours a day in a car that was really boring. Oh, Boy, yeah. was it boring to sit in that car for 10 or 12 hours. And we'd pull into gas stations because you got to get gas. And you know what gas stations had at the time? Spinner racks. Yep, just like the one and, behind you there. <laughs> and my, mom, my dad or mom would give me a quarter and I could get two comics for a quarter. And being on the road for a month and being the gas stations didn't really clean out their spinner racks that often. I could get two or three issues of a comic in a row, you know, two or three issues of X-Men, two or three issues of Fantastic Four. And I started to see how these stories built on each other and connected, you know, Fantastic Four to X-Men and back and forth. And that was the summer I got hooked. That was, that was like the summer that did it for me. Well, that my, I have my, a similar story uh, as well. I think I was four or five and, and same kind of thing, a uh, big, big camping trip in an RV. And yeah, you're right. <laughs> Nothing better to pass the time than, uh, you know, reading, reading comics. So, uh, but like I said, you, you've worked for the big two, you've, you've worked on, you know, just about all these characters, but in, in recent years, you've been doing more of the, the creator owned stuff with your, uh, with your panic press. Um, was that just a, uh, you know, desire to have uh, more control over these characters and tell the kind of stories that, that you want to tell. Give us a, a little background on on Panic. Yeah, well, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I mean, it all started when uh, with Section Zero, which is a book Tom Grummet and I started way back in 2000 uh, as part of uh, Image, uh, the, the Guerrilla Comics imprint of Image. But of course, at the time, Tom and I only got three issues out and I got you know, divorced and that messed up my whole plan of life. Right. And um, I can no longer honestly continue to afford to work on a creator-owned project that paid me no money. I had bills to pay and uh, my, you know, my income was paying that bill, those bills. So uh, I had to put section zero off to the side, but it was a, a passion project for Tom and I. And we always were trying to figure out ways to get back to it. Uh, you know, sometime in like 2007 or something, we thought, Maybe we could do a web comic and do just a page or two a week. Mm-hmm. And we got 12 new pages of story done at that point. But, it, but then, you know, life got in the way again. And then Kickstarter just, it was always in the periphery. And I'd heard, you know, Gail Simone, she did amazing on Kickstarter, raised all this money. And, and so, you know, I was just, I wanted to finish off that story in the very least. And so Tom and I took the plunge and we did a Kickstarter for Section Zero. and. Uh, I honestly did not think it was going to fund. It funded on the very last day. We raised a third of our funds on the very last day for, for Section Zero. And all of a sudden, we like we could do the book again. We had money in the bank that would pay our bills while we finished it. And that was very exciting and very empowering. And uh, working on it, uh, it, it just, you know, it's a lot of fun to work on Superman. It's a lot of fun to work on Harley Quinn and Spider-Man. But there's nothing more soul satisfying than working on your own creations and seeing it all the pieces come together. And quite honestly, I found I found I loved working on all the pieces. I I got a taste of this when we did Section Zero back in 2000. I found that I really enjoyed, you know, dealing with you know what does the trade dress look like and what are we going to have on the inside front cover, 
and oh, the printer needs these files by this date. I mean, this this is a lot of minutia, but um, I really enjoyed all the pieces to this process. I really did. And with Kickstarter, it's even more direct because there there is no Image Comics handling any of it for me. I'm dealing directly with the printer. I'm dealing with the people who are fulfilling it, um, and I'll, and that takes up a lot of time. I got to say, but it's very satisfying that I know how all these pieces fit together in my head. And uh, I have juggled some of it well, and I've juggled some of it not so well, but I'm getting better at it. And it's, it's, it's a job I really love. It's a job that's really satisfying to me on a real deep basis. So um, uh, after Section Zero worked, I've gone back with Impossible Jones, and uh, we're working on a second Section Zero book, which has been unfortunately very delayed, but we're still working away on it. And I, I see this as my future, working on a few select projects that my heart and soul is deeply invested in. Well, I, I think that's great because, first of all, the fact that you're getting to work on uh, characters and, and uh, titles and series that you're so passionate about, and that comes through in the work, uh, you know, more so. And not that your, you know, work for the, the big two or another publisher is, is bad, uh, but, you know, I can tell you're having more fun, you know, and so uh, I think that's great. The other thing that's amazing about Kickstarter that I always like to talk about is the fact that it is, you know, a more direct relationship with the fans and you've built a community, you know, you've, you've done a few of, uh, campaigns now and they funded and now it's like people are like, okay, we, we expect, you know, when's Carl's next Kickstarter coming? And you, you build up that, that fan base and that sense of community. Um, how has that experience been for you? Uh, that's actually, I think, the best part of it. I mean, I've gotten to know uh, a lot of the people who, who are, are fans who love my work or love Tom Grumman's work or love David Hahn's work. And, uh, you know, I mean, I know them by name now. I, you know, uh, some of them have been in my house, you know, and we've had dinners or lunches together. And a lot of them I've, ex you know, exchanged emails with. And um, that's that direct contact with the fans is, is, you know, one of the biggest pluses to the whole Kickstarter and crowdfunding experience. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it's just really great to know exactly who's there and, and, you know, like, you know, people, you know, some of our reward tiers are, are people can pay to appear in the comics, but I've also quite honestly, I've been writing scenes and I'll think of someone I've just exchanged some emails with. And, uh, you know, I've, I've done this recently and I wrote them a little note and I said, I, I was thinking of using your and wife's name in this scene. Would that be okay? You know? <laughs> and, and, you know, in, the, in this particular case, you know, uh, he said, well, I got this cat named, Rumpelstiltskin, maybe you can use that. And, and for a while I thought I would, but it went in a different direction. But the thing is, it gave that scene a real specificity. Oh, that, there's a word I just made up. <laughs> a, a real, a real, you know, specific feel. It wasn't just, um, I don't know, it, get, it just gave it, it grounded that scene in a way that would not have existed if I had not been having that direct contact with those fans and those people who enjoy my work. And yeah, so this was a, a little way of me giving just a little tiny bit back to them. I mean, you know, yeah, but, um, but it really adds a lot. It adds a lot to the books on all levels. Yeah. And, and it's not to say that you don't hear from fans when you work on the big two books, but it's, it, it's in a different way. Like you, maybe you got to go to a convention or it takes so much longer. Whereas here on Kickstarter, like you said, you're, you're getting emails, you're getting comments on the campaign page. So that's, that's really yeah. great. Yeah. And I have to say, um, I know when we did the Kickstarter for the second section zero book, 
it was it was the backers from the first book that said, well, Tom Grummet, he did all of these sketches. You guys should put out a sketchbook as one of the reward levels and never would have occurred to me. Never. And uh, so we're from now on, when we do sketches and we've, we're doing it with the latest Impossible Jones uh, Kickstarter, too. There is a level where you can get a sketchbook of the sketches David and I did for the first Impossible Jones book. So um, I never would have thought of that without the fans. Never. Yeah, it's so, it's so great. The the other thing that I want to touch on before we start talking about the campaign specifically is you you mentioned liking the the minutia. So and I find that to be so interesting because some uh, creators, especially when they start off doing kickstarters, they they don't they don't think about that. You know, like yeah, you've got to pick your uh, paper stock. You got to tell them what goes on this page, what goes on that page, what's your paper weight for the inside yeah, pages. There's yeah. just there's so much. And they don't realize that, you know, just a campaign, it, it's a more than full-time job to run a, a campaign for 30 days. Um, and some of them, it's not that they resent that, but they, I think they don't realize it. Um, and they certainly don't enjoy it to the level that, that you do. So is it, is it more that you have total control over the final package that you find it so satisfying? Is there a, another reason that you enjoy it so much? I just find that to be so interesting that you love even picking cover stock and paperweights. <laughs> well, you know, I think, I think part of it probably is a control issue on my side, but I do think the other part of it is, is um, I, I just like learning about these different, um, you know, parts of the process and the different things that, you know, I, until I did that first section zero book, I thought black was black, black ink was black ink, but you know what? There's different kinds of black ink mm -hmm. and there's hot and see, I'm not a painter. I don't work with colors. Um, so most of my, all of all my life, all I've done is black and white illustrations with ink and paper. So to start dealing with printing and the colors involved there and realize there's hot blacks, cold, cool blacks. This was, this was mind blowing to me, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I, I also just enjoy learning all that new stuff so that I can be better informed going forward. Um, so, and, and I don't know, it's just very, you know, I will say the first time around on that first section zero uh, Kickstarter, I, I did not budget for the time it took to deal with the printers and the deal with the fulfillment and, you know, doing the production work and the trafficking work. And, and since then I have built in a very modest sum that pays me for that work um it, it it certainly certainly isn't what dc and marvel are paying their editors i'm sure but right. um but but you know i you know tom and i and david hun we don't we don't pay ourselves our marvel and dc rates to do these books either you know yeah so. well and you know like i said you, you you guys are doing this because you want these stories out there uh and and you love it but right. yes please please make sure you pay that's another thing that uh, early on, I'll hear people, especially people that use Kickstarter to kind of get their foot in the door in the industry. Um, and they're they're basically selling the everything at cost or even losing money on a Kickstarter. And I always encourage them, you know, a couple more bucks. Just you got to give yourself something. You got to eat. <laughs> you yeah, you got to. You got to. And I've got, you know, I got two kids. I got a wife who has been unemployed since COVID hit. So what I do on Kickstarter is what pays our mortgage, you know. And yeah. so I got to make sure the numbers add up. <clears throat> and it, I mean, the first, I, I would say section zero there was quite a bit of money that came out of my own pocket at the end because I did not budget for everything mm -hmm. properly, but I become a lot more aware of that. And the idea of course, is this, you know, the, the current uh, impossible Jones, I know it's going to pay its way. I know it's going to pay its way. We've met our goal. We've surpassed our goal. Um, and even with the added things, I've been taking that into account every step of the way, the costs of 
the poster, the cost of the stickers. And um, so we're going to come out fine on this one. And, you know, like I said, we're not paying ourselves the amount of money we would make if we were doing this for, for or doing any story for Marvel or DC. I'm probably working about uh, 60, maybe 75% of my page rate that I'd get at Marvel or DC. So it would be nice if maybe in the, in the future, and this is the hope that our audience will grow to the point that we will be earning the same sort of money we would make at Marvel or DC. Yeah, that's okay. always yeah, that's always the hope to keep uh, to keep growing and keep learning and keep challenging. Yeah, yourself. I mean, right now we can pay our bills, but we're not going to be going to the, to uh, Venice anytime soon. <laughs> believe me. Uh, well, let's dive into the the campaign itself. Obviously, uh, you mentioned this is Impossible Jones two, so this is uh, you're returning to the character. But for uh, any of our listeners who aren't familiar with her, didn't get a chance to to check out the first one, uh, give us kind of the the elevator pitch. Who is Impossible Jones, and what is this particular uh, issue all about? So Impossible Jones is a, um, she's a thief and she gains superpowers um, and then is mistaken for a superhero because basically when she gets her powers, she decides to go after her gang her le- who left her behind for dead. But from the outside looking in, she's going after criminals. So people start saying, you must be a hero. You must be a superhero. And she just kind of rolls with it. Why not? <laughs> and um, she doesn't have any, desire or uh, plan to give up her criminal ways, but being thought of as a hero uh, makes life a lot easier for her. Mm-hmm. You know, the cops are not after her. The cops like, you know, give her coffee when she stops by the police station. The cops tell her, oh, well, we're, double, we're doubling shifts over here. And yeah, that means the docks might not be covered as much tonight as usual. But, you know, they'll tell her these things. <laughs> um, she can go into a jewelry store and say, so uh, what sort of security system you got here? I'm just curious. I mean, she, she uh, plays on the trust that comes with being known as a hero um, and uses that and her added powers to her, her thieving advantage. Um, so the whole thing is it's, it's a con game. This is a con, a long con for her, a big con with very high stakes because, you know, she's running around and, you know, rubbing elbows with the established superheroes of this city that she's in. And she's got to make sure that they don't, that their radar doesn't go off. You know, that, that her whole world falls down if they start thinking she's not who she says. Who, well, I don't even know if she says she's a hero, but she lets other people say she's a hero. I've always enjoyed characters who don't lie, but maybe never really quite tell the truth. I always like that better about characters than characters who actually do lie. And that's who she is. So, I mean, she's, I wouldn't say she's an evil person, but yeah, she's a very, eh, you know, I don't Selfish person, I guess that that would be the best way to put it. But she finds herself in positions where she's got to do the right thing, or everything falls down around her. Um, and I, I, she's a real fun character. I, I really enjoy this this character, and I think I think the setup has a lot of possibilities that David and I are really looking forward to exploring in years years to come. Yeah, and in this uh, in this particular issue issue two, she uh, she meets up with another uh, thief. That's a, that's Christmas themed. Yes. Uh, I, I find that to be interesting too, because this book's going to co- come out uh, around in the summer. Did you originally plan to have it come out during the, during the holidays? No, no, this is um, Holly days is this character's name and she appears in the first uh, book, which you know, right here, the hardcover book. But um, I created Holly very specifically because, um, you know, impossible Jones comes out of, me missing working on Har- Harley Quinn, 
quite honestly. I, I enjoyed that sort of very vibrant female character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also enjoyed that, that how, how uh, Harley walks that line between good and evil. I thought all of that was very interesting. But Impossible Jones also has a, a strong dose of plastic man in her because, you know, I really woke up one day and said, oh, my God, I think I know how to make plastic man work. And it's the idea that he really didn't intend to become a hero. He got these these powers and then was mistaken for a hero. Mm-hmm. And I think that's got a lot of potential. So, but I was very worried early on that people would think that Impossible Jones was just Harley Quinn with a different costume. And so I created Holly Days very specifically to be a Harley-like character. She's much more, um, in, I don't know what the word, she's, she, Impossible Jones, it turns out, you know, these characters write themselves after a while. And she is a much more calculating individual than Harley is. Harley really reacts to the moment. Right. And Impossible Jones, as a con artist, she's got to think big, long term. She's got to. So Holly Days is a much more in the moment character than Impossible Jones is. And I created Holly specifically so that when the two meet and interact, you can see how Imp is not Harley Quinn, you know. Holly Days, yeah, she's very Harley Quinn. Imp, not so much. But in the in the first book, when they meet up, uh, one of the first things that Imp asks her is she goes, you know, you and I, we should we should go out and get some drinks sometime. And like Holly's going, but you're a hero and I'm a criminal. <laughs> and she, and you know the way the way the way Imp just uh, brushes that off, she goes, you're all about Christmas. How evil can you be? You know. <laughs> And uh, and so they developed this very, you know, interesting relationship where uh, and that's what we do. We follow them on a girl's night out. They go out to get some drinks. They go to a place called uh, Club Cosplay, where everyone dresses up as their favorite heroes and villains. And this way they can wear their costumes and not have to worry about it. And um, and then things happen. And since since Holly is a Harley analog, we do have a Joker analog. And since Holly is Christmas themed, the Joker analog is Krampus. We have a Krampus character. He's the, the mentor or uh, lover from Holly's past. And they had a bad breakup. And uh, the story is really about um, the fallout from that. And uh, he's just, he's just in the shadows, just kind of waiting for them and, for the whole story he, he's he's a shadow over the whole story yeah this is a uh, longer than a, than a you know normal monthly book right you guys are going 32 pages is that right yeah i mean this the main story itself is 28 pages and uh then one of our stretch goals was for a backup story so that's right now four pages so right now we have a 30 we have 32 pages of story that's in this book great and uh if anybody hasn't uh, had a chance to uh read impossible jones the, the first one uh is are there any reward tiers that allow somebody to go back and and you know check out that first story as well before they they dive into this one um before they dive into this one i don't know about that but you can get the first book you can get the first book as a pdf or as a, as a solid hardcover book i mean that certainly is available yeah um and yeah so so that that is available <laughs> so. what are uh what are some of the other reward tiers uh that you're offering for the campaign well, we do, since this is a, this is a floppy, we're doing a, a 32 page book, which actually at this point is going to be a 40 page book uh, with, so that we have room for thank you pages and room for behind the scenes sketches and stuff like that. We have a few pinups I probably will put in. 
But we have two alternate covers. This is, this is uh, probably our biggest bonus. One alternate cover was drawn by Jeff Smith, the man who did Bone, which is one of my kids and my favorite graphic novels of all time. Um, so that made me a hero to my kids that I got Jeff Smith to draw a cover for me. They were like, whoa, Jeff Smith. You know, it's like, dad, he draws comics, but whoa, Jeff Smith, you know? Yeah. So, um, but, uh, and then the other uh, alternate cover was, is by my old uh, Superman mate, Dan Jurgens. And Dan penciled it and I've inked it and it's been colored and it's already. And um, this, this is going to be the only place I will ever print this cover. The Dan Jurgens cover will never be in a collection. We're not going to make coffee mugs with it. We're not going to make mouse pads with it. If if you want this Dan Jurgens piece, you got to get it here. That's great. That's great. Um, plans to continue uh, Impossible Jones? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, right now, uh, what, ha what happened was after we finished the first book, which was a graphic novel, 150 some pages long, um, we got ready to do the second graphic novel and David and I started working on it. David drew pages. I'd written out script and there's just something really like niggling away at the back of my head. And, and I realized uh, I wanted to do some smaller stories first. We were really doing like this move. We were doing impossible Jones to the movie. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to do some smaller stories that were more character oriented that uh, focused on, imp and what her life was like and what her relationships were like and maybe fill in some cracks uh about what the the town she lived in was like just to give it a little more um i don't know to expand the feel of the place and make it a little more filled in and, and more real at least to me and uh, so really at the last minute we were going to launch our campaign back in january i was working on the page and everything and then one day i just called up david and i said david I think we have to hold off on the graphic novel. And what I want to do is four standalone floppies that take Impossible Jones and Team Imp with another character from your universe, different character for each issue. We do four issues. And these are smaller stories, character-driven stories that um, just give us a chance to explore and expand her universe and ground it a little more. And then once we have those basics in place, then we can have the big story, the, the, the earth shattering story where the city might crumble, you know, that that's about a year down, down the road. So yeah, over the course of the next year, hopefully every three, four months, David and I will launch another 32 page, maybe 40 page uh, impossible Jones standalone. And uh, we'll, we'll be featuring some of the characters that were in the original uh, graphic novel. Uh, Captain lightning is one of them and Polecat, And both of these characters I created in second grade. Awesome. And I was like so thrilled to be able to pull them out of my back pocket and put them into a comic eventually, finally. So, uh, but, but so you know, I've been looking forward to doing stories with those characters since second grade. So now I get a chance to. That's awesome. Uh, but I, I think that's a great plan um, because a couple things uh, you're getting uh, a chance to, to reach more people before you do the next, you know, big graphic novel. And the other thing is uh, all the people that do uh, pick up these, these books, you know, these four standalones, give us all a chance to get invested in these characters and then we can have the big story and it'll hit that much harder. So I would like to think you're right. I'd like to think you're right. Yeah. That's, that's my plan. Yeah. <laughs> How has uh, the collaborative process been with, with David? I mean, his art is, is incredible. It's a very clean style, uh, almost an animation style. And, and you, uh, you know, obviously being an artist yourself, 
Um, do, do you guys just click? I mean, is it shorthand at this point when you're talking and, and everything just kind of gels or is it more of a, a back and forth to make sure you get everything uh, the way you want? Well, I think it's a little bit of both, quite honestly. David, uh, you know, I, I always admired David's work since I first met him like 20 years ago. And, um, you know, he was my, you know, I, I couldn't think of anyone else drawing Impossible Jones at this point, to tell you the truth. <clears throat> but um, I, I originally started Impossible Jones, the first graphic novel, writing full script. And then just to move things along quicker, I started doing plot dialogue, which, I mean, I used to do, quite honestly, all the time with uh, Superboy, Superman, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, had, I, I had honestly forgotten how much fun plot dialogue is. And that gave David a little more leeway to push and pull things. And, and David, you know, he is a writer in, in his own right. And he understands story structure and he knows dramatics. And uh, so there will be times where David will say, you know, this thing you had in the plot, I'd like to do this instead. And nine times out of 10, I, I think he's got a great idea. Nine times out of 10. And one time out of 10, I disagree. And, and we might have a little back and forth, but there's never been any point where we've been shaking fists at each other and saying, why you? No, I mean, we respect each other. We, uh, we certainly admire each other's work. And uh, you know, I, I don't see the point working with someone who makes it a struggle. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, David, David and I do generally click and are generally on the same page. Um, and the few times that we aren't, our discussion about that has always resulted in a better uh, ending. Yeah, well, I mean, and and that's the point because uh, you know we we talked already about how you guys are having fun and that passion and and uh, you know the fun you're having comes through on the page, uh, but the, that's the other part of of creator own. You know, you get to work for the you know with your friends or the people that you you want to work with instead of you know an editor saying okay this is your artist this is your color artist or or what have you. So uh, right, yeah, just another a benefit of of uh, doing this. And you know, I've I've talked to creators lately. We've been talking about. Um, kind of those dynamics, you know, it is a small industry and there's that, that saying, right. You can be, uh, as a creator, you can be nice, you can be fast, or you can be really, really good. And you need to be two of the three in order to have a career in comics. But if you ask other creators, like if I ask you, like of those three, which is the, the most important for a, a collaborator, you're probably going to say, oh, I want to work with somebody who's nice. Nobody wants to work with a jerk, right? No, no one wants to work with a jerk. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's, it, I have to ask you, where did you hear those three rules? I mean, I've heard those re- three, three rules too, but I, I'm. I don't remember. It was, at a, it was at a convention and I think it was probably after hours at like San Diego at, at the Hyatt Bar or something in a, right. in a group of, of creators. And, you know, we were, it wasn't necessarily gossiping or saying anything bad about anybody in no. particular. Um, but just that's the topic kind of got around to who, who you like to work with. And that kind of came out of that conversation and God, it was so many years ago now. I don't, I couldn't tell you who it was or, or, um, or who, who was there. I I would tell you this. I heard those three rules, excuse me, when I was at the Kubert school Mm. and, uh, um, one of my teachers and now I'm blanking on his name, but he said those three rules. He goes, this is how you get by in the industry. You're either nice you're reliable or you're really good. And you got to be two of those three things. If you're mm-hmm. two of those three things, you've got a career. And, and, and I just heard you say those exact same words. Yeah. So that, that's kind of freaky to me. Yeah, I think it's true. And, and listen, we can, the, the easiest thing of those three to control is to be nice. Yeah. <laughs> There's no yeah. to be, you know, to, uh, to be <sighs> So, um, 
anyway, it's been great talking to you, Carl. Uh, everybody, the, uh, there's a link in the show notes to uh, the campaign. It's already funded, so you're guaranteed to get it if you go and back it. Uh, and as I always remind everybody, uh, if you don't think it's for you or uh, you don't have the means right now to join the campaign, just share it. Just share it on your social media uh, because it really helps out. We want everybody who is interested and, and you know can back this to be able to see it. Like, people can't back it if they don't get their eyes on it. So exactly. the, more shared, uh, the more it's out there on social media, the more people who do want to join the campaign uh, can check it out. So I encourage everybody, uh, click on the link, go and check it out, or just Google uh, Impossible Jones Kickstarter. You can find it that way. Uh, yeah. And as far as uh, social media or your presence uh, online, Carl, if people want to ask you questions or follow along with your work, uh, where's the best place online to uh, to find you? Well, I'm I'm at Carl Kiesel at Twitter, and uh, I'm I guess I'm under the same name on on Facebook. I always get confused on how to tell people to find me on Facebook, but I'm Carl Kiesel on Facebook too. So, but I mean, thanks you know thanks for saying that thing about sharing because it's it's essential. I don't think people realize how essential. Mm-hmm. And I always say, you know, like you know people I don't, and right. the people you know probably like the same things you like. So. If you like Impossible Jones, they might like it too. In fact, they might thank you for telling them about it, you know? And the only, you know, the only way we make this work is by spreading, the, you know, we got to have a crowd to be crowdfunded, you know? Exactly. Yeah, it, it's the worst thing. Um, when I see a Kickstarter that's already finished, it's already completed, I never saw the campaign while it was running and I, I want it. I wanted to mm-hmm. be a part of it, you know? So just share the word, spread it around everybody so that uh, anybody who wants it is going to be able to, to get it. Um, and uh, again, I, I missed out on the first time. I didn't know about Impossible Jones. So I'm definitely picking up uh, that hardcover looked great. So I've got to make sure I get my, my hardcover graphic novel and my, uh, I'm going for that Dan Jurgens. I'm a big fan of Dan. So I gotta go for that. <laughs> Dan, Dan's a sweetheart. Yeah. And he did a great job on that piece. Yeah. He said, I'm sorry, I went a little off model. But um, I mean, that's kind of the fun of getting people to draw the, the character, right? You want to see their take on it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, I'll also put a link, everybody, to um, to Carl's uh, website, the Panic Press website, as well as his Twitter in the show notes. So uh, you can go click there and uh, and find him. So uh, again, congratulations on funding, uh, Carl. Best of luck. Uh, there's a week left, everybody. Uh, yeah. Let me get the uh, exact date for you that the, I believe it's the uh, eight? campaign ends. Uh, yep, it ends yeah. on April 8th it's at 8 p.m. Um, mountain time. So, mountain time, yeah, uh, 7 p.m. Pacific. Uh, yep, 7 p.m. Uh, Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern. So you got a week left. Don't wait. Go check it out uh, right now. Uh, join the campaign or uh, at least share it out on social media uh, so as many people as, as possible can see it. So, uh, again, Carl, uh, my door's always open anytime uh, you've got a campaign or something you want to spotlight. We'd love to have you back on. It's, uh, it's been great chatting. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Believe me. Thank you, Jace. You bet. So uh, to all you listeners, we want to thank you for your support and for listening as always. And we'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. 
All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.